So we're continuing in 2 Timothy. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Today we're just going to be looking at verses 8 through 12. Only a couple of verses there. These verses are really rich. They're really deep. And um, there's a lot to unpack. We're not going to cover all of it, but we're going to do our best to see what we can cover. Um, I don't know how much you know about ancient Rome and Christianity. Um, before, um, be- before Paul, who's the guy who wrote 2 Timothy, before Paul was in prison, I think we told you last week Paul was in prison when he wrote this, before he was in prison there was a ruler named Augustus Caesar, which most people have heard about Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar was actually really good. He was a fair ruler of Rome. The people loved him. The army obeyed him. Um, Rome really prospered under his rule and reign. But after he died, they had a succession of really pitiful emperors who ruled in their stead. One guy actually um, said that he would make this pony in charge of his army, and he commanded the soldiers that they had to obey whatever the horse told them to do. True story. And, but the worst emperor was Emperor Nero, and you guys have probably all heard about Nero. Nero was famous for playing the, the, the leer, the liar. I don't know how you say it. The little, okay, thank you. Don't call me a liar, guys. All right? I set you up. I set you up for that. <laughs> so you probably have heard the expression that while Rome was burning, Nero was playing the fiddle. So the background of that story is that Nero thought he was awesome at the lyre, and he wasn't. He was actually terrible, but everybody was afraid to tell him he was terrible because he had a tendency to kill people who disagreed with him. And so he would say things, these crazy things. He would say things like, what a gift to the world my music is. And he would say, the world's going to have a giant hole in its heart after I leave because I'm such a good musician. And they were like, "Uh uh-huh, this kind of stuff. So one day, um, Nero decided after 10 years of reigning, he needed a vacation. So he went to his country house. He brought a bunch of his bros, and they just had a party that went on for days and days and days and days. Now, while he is out in the country having a grand old time, um, a fire broke out in Rome in the poor neighborhood. Nobody really knows how it started, but, you know, back then people started little campfires to cook in their houses all the time. Not uncommon. But this fire spread. And the conditions were right, it's windy, all these kinds of things. It really spread. And it spread, and it started to burn down the entire neighborhood that was in that section of the city until it got up to a stone wall. And the stone wall had been built by the rich people who lived on the other side of the stone wall so that when a fire came, it would stop at the stone wall. But it was so windy, and the conditions were so ripe for the fire to spread that the flames actually leapt over the wall and continued and, and just ravaged Rome. Now, at this point in time, they sent a messenger to Nero um, out on a horse, and he, he went. He went to go tell Nero to interrupt his playing of the lyre to let him know that, the, that Rome was burning down. And the guy came in, and he said, I got a message for Nero, and he tells the message, and Nero says, you need to remove this man because he's totally putting a damper on my party, Okay. And then he continued to party for a few more days. Now, when Nero finally came back to Rome, the city was basically decimated. And there was just crowds and crowds and crowds of people who were desperate for food. They had nowhere to sleep. They had nothing to eat. Their jobs had been destroyed and so on and so forth. And they appealed to him and to his ancestors. And they said, Augustus Caesar was a great emperor. He helped the poor. Can't you help us? And indeed, Nero did decide 
to give them some food and some help and those sorts of things. But then he made a really dumb move because he's Nero. And this is what Nero said. And he said, you know, this section of the town that burned down, it was actually quite ugly anyway. And actually, it just solved my problem of having to do all this demolition. And so I'm going to build a new, better palace where this burned down. And you can imagine that didn't go well with the people. And the people started to get extremely upset. And Nero, even though he took a break from his lyre playing, and he realized that the rebellion was at hand if he didn't do something. And so being the quick-witted guy that he he was, this is what he said. He said, and by the way, I know who started the fire. It was those Christians. Now, of course, it wasn't the Christians, but that's who he blamed for it. And by providing a necessary scapegoat, For the fire, all of Rome, and indeed the Roman Empire, viewed Christians as vandals and terrorists and enemies of the state. It was at that point in time that the Christians were forced to go into the the, uh, catacombs of Rome, and they were put into the Colosseum to fight with lions, and all sorts of things began to happen towards the Christians in the Roman Empire. Basically, persecution broke out. Now, I share that because this is the backdrop to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is written either the same year or the following year after Rome burned down. And so this is at the peak of persecution. That's probably why Paul is under arrest in Rome. And you can imagine that it would have been a difficult time. Matter of fact, you know, the book of Hebrews is a complicated book. Maybe some of you guys have read the book of Hebrews. You tried to study it. What you need to know as you under, to understand the book of Hebrews is that if you were a Jewish Christian, a Jew who became a follower of Jesus, and you're living under this Nero boot, and someone comes to you and they say, are you a Christian? You know what it's really easy to say? I'm a Jew, bro. And they say, all right, well, good thing you're not a Christian. And so it was really easy to hide under your Judaism. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. The author is saying, don't go back. The only way forward is with Christ. You can't rely on your old heritage. And that's why there's so many confusing passages in the book of Hebrews, because that's the backdrop of it. You see, this was a time when people hated Christians, and it was easier to pretend that you agreed with Nero than to stand up for Christ. People were tempted to choose the path of safety and ease rather than shame and suffering. And if we're honest with ourselves— Although we're nowhere near the persecution or the difficulty that many of our brothers and sisters throughout history have faced. We don't want to even, we're not under persecution. Maybe we're at like the door of oppression, but nowhere near real persecution, okay? If, If we really want to be honest, we are nowhere near that, but we can understand the sentiment. Because to stand up for biblical truth is to invite social pressure, it's to invite social ostracization, it's to invite being canceled, it's to invite being misunderstood, it's to be invited to be labeled as a bigot because you get lumped in with categories, right? We know these things are reality in the country in which we live. And so we live in a time when it's easier to hide behind silence, or it's easier to hide behind platitudes or Christian memes. It's easy to hide behind nice-sounding, lofty-thinking philosophical arguments. 
Of course, those are the same arguments that Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, hold no value, and they're worthless, and so instead to hold fast to the head, who is Jesus. See, already our current generation, I'm 41, already our current generation is ashamed of orthodoxy, right? A, a biblical plurality of male elders leading the church, that seems archaic. Having some of the, what do you mean that there are certain things in the Scripture that aren't just cultural and we can't just throw them out? That the Bible is true? That the Word of God is reliable? If these things are already big issues in our current generation, we can imagine the next generation is not going to embrace them. See, the problem with that our, what our nation needs to hear, and indeed what all nations need to hear, is we need to hear biblical truth. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear that the wrath of God is coming because, the sins, because of the sins of the world, but God has provided a way escape through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We need to hear that in previous times, God allowed humanity to walk in its ignorance, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent, and he has appointed a man who's going to judge the world, and he has proven his authority by raising him from the dead. These are the realities that we need to hear. But to proclaim the gospel and the truth of the Bible in the midst of a crooked generation will require courage and boldness because darkness hates light. And this is one reason why God gave us his Holy Spirit. We looked at this verse last week, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason I remind you, fan into, the, into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, specifically the Holy Spirit, a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. And so God has given each true believer his Holy Spirit as a helper, as a guarantee, as a down payment of the future inheritance that we have with Jesus Christ. And he empowers us, the Holy Spirit empowers us for good works, convicts us of sin, can, convicts the world of righteousness, glorifies Jesus, comforts us with God's grace, and so on and so forth. And so Paul's charge in this book, in last week we looked at this, is to fan the Holy Spirit's filling to a bonfire so that God will use you in your unique giftedness for his glory and the good of others. And then Paul begins verse 8 here, where we stopped last week with that word, therefore, because it's connected to what we just said. And he says, therefore, since this is the Spirit you've been given, do not be ashamed of the testimony of, of, about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. See, this passage is all about a proper response to the gospel. And if we were going to do this whole paragraph, you'd realize there's four commands, four clear gospel commands in this passage. And in the middle of the paragraph 
is an explanation of the gospel. And interestingly, it's framed, it's sandwiched on either side by the word gospel. Gospel, explanation, gospel. And on either side of that is a call to suffering and shame. Look what he says in his explanation of the gospel. Gospel, beginning in verse 8. By the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, we don't think about it because we live in the United States, but, and we're not a shame and honor culture, right? Um, but the gospel is all about shame and honor. It's all about shame and honor. When you talk with, for example, when I'm overseas and I'm talking with a, a Muslim about the gospel, I don't share the gospel through the perspective of, let me list all the things that you do that are wrong so you feel guilty. See, Americans relate to that because we're a guilt-driven culture. But when you share with a Muslim, especially someone who didn't grow up in the West, I share it through a shame culture. That when you talk about what Adam did in Genesis chapter 3, and you look at the way that Adam's actions shamed his father, his heavenly father, the way that he shamed his father by his actions, and what does God do? God kicks him out of the house. It's a shame and honor situation. It's something that we forget when we look at it through our own culture. The gospel is directly related to shame, but the gospel is also about the power of Christ on display to remedy this issue. The gospel is, this is what Paul says, he says, it's the power to save us. The gospel is the power to save us. It's the power to save us from the consequence of sin. It's the power to save us from the shame of sin. Look what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. It's the power to forgive us of our sins, our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What was sin's legal demand? Death. He says, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And so let me pause there. So the gospel has the power to save us from the consequence of sin because God took that laundry list of sin, He put it on the cross, He nailed it to the cross, Jesus' blood is poured out, His blood covers that list, and now that is wiped clean and it is forgiven. The debt has been paid, it has been canceled. That's the power to save us from the consequence of sin, but then also the power to save us from the shame of sin. Look at verse 15 in Colossians chapter 2. He then disarmed the rulers and authorities by whenever Paul uses rulers and authorities, he's talking about supernatural spiritual powers, okay? In other words, he's referring to demons. Specifically, he's referring to spiritual beings, the Elohim in the Hebrew. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. That he took the shame of your sin and he nailed it to the cross and now they look foolish for accusing you. The same way that what happens in the book of Esther. Who's the bad guy in Esther's story? What's his name? What is it? 
Haman. Haman comes and he's going to go make an accusation against Mordecai because he wants Mordecai killed. And what does King Xerxes do? He says, oh, look at my servant Mordecai. Would you please put him on the king's horse and give him the king's robe and the king's ring and lead him from the streets and, and say, this is what happens to the man the king wants to honor. And so who winds up getting shamed? Mordecai? No, Haman gets shamed. And in the same way on that cross, God takes the shame of our sin and he flips it upside down and he says, you don't need to be ashamed. I'm going to shame the powers that would accuse the brethren. That's the power of the gospel. Simultaneously removing our shame while shaming the enemy that led humanity into shame. The gospel is the power to, give, to call us to a holy calling. Paul continues, not on the basis of merit, but of grace and purpose. What does that mean? It means forget the shame of doing, of being called to in the gospel, gospel ministry, sharing the gospel, encouraging your friends, praying for people, whatever it might be. Forget the shame of what you say, I have no right doing. The shame has been removed by the power of the gospel. Or the shame of what, well, I can't do that well. The shame has been removed in the power of the gospel. Or the shame of your failures and mistakes the shame of your past that would disqualify you from having the ability and the right to do anything important. You were not given a calling based on merit, but based on grace and His purposes. And that is not why God called you. He didn't call you because of merit. He called you because of His purpose. There's no shame anymore. It's the power to save us, the power to call us. And this was all according to the plan of God. This was his plan all along. The plan set in motion before the foundation of the earth, before there was time. God had set this plan in motion to abolish death by abolishing sin through the Son's death, to bring life to us and immortality by raising Christ from the dead, that he would be the first fruits of many sons and daughters who would be lived forever in glory. This is the gospel that we believe, and this is the gospel that we proclaim. It's a gospel. It's good news for sinners to forgive them and to give them purpose. It's a gospel that removes shame. Is there anything in that of which we should be Ashamed? Absolutely not. There's nothing for us to be ashamed of in the gospel. Listen, I'm ashamed about a lot of things. I could give you the order alphabetically, according to syllables, like whatever you want, okay? I'm ashamed of my sin. I'm ashamed of my inability to change. Right? I'm ashamed of my lack of love. I'm ashamed of my mistakes. I'm ashamed of my selfishness, my insecurities, my insufficiencies. But I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this is why. It's all I have. It's all I have. If I have to rely on my merit, I'm going to be ashamed. If I have to rely on my ability to pick myself up by my own bootstraps, I'm going to be ashamed. If I have to rely on the fact that maybe I won't mess up today, I'm going to be ashamed. I'm going to cling to the gospel because it's the only reason I'm not ashamed. Because I know what God has spoken over me of who I am in Christ. Now, Paul knew a thing or two about shame. He used to kill followers of Christ. It was at his feet that they put the coats when they were stoning Stephen to death as the first martyr in the book of Acts. Paul knows a thing or two about shame. When he finally followed Christ, they didn't even want to welcome him in because they said, don't you know what that man used to do? 
he was ashamed among Christians for years, maybe for his life. He, we don't know, but he was probably ashamed in front of his family because he turned his back on the Jewish heritage as a kind of a Pharisee in the making. And here Paul goes and he falls in love with the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul knew a thing or two about shame, but Paul also knew a thing or two about the gospel. He says earlier in 2 Timothy verses 1 and 2 that he is the recipient of it. He is, he is re receiving the life that is promised in Jesus, the grace that's promised in Jesus, the mercy that's promised in Jesus, and the peace. And he says that I received a holy calling. He says to be an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher. In other words, he says I was sent to proclaim, I was sent for this gospel. I proclaim this gospel, and I teach this gospel, and what a glorious calling I have that I did not deserve or earn. And he says, because of my calling, I suffer, but I am not ashamed. Who cares if Nero kills me? Kill me. I will go be with Christ forever, while you, Nero, will rot in the grave and die a million deaths. Who's the one who should be ashamed? But Paul continues in that passage, and he says, I will tell you why I am not ashamed. He says, I know in whom I've believed. See, Paul's not ashamed because there's no reason to be ashamed of what is true. There's no reason to be ashamed of what is true. Paul knows who he has believed. He knows in whom he believes. He believes in Jesus. This is Paul's faith. He says, I'm not ashamed because I know who Jesus is. I know that he is beginning a new family. I know that he's beginning a new heritage, that he is beginning a new humanity as the second Adam. He says, I'm not ashamed because I know that Jesus, I'm a co-heir with Jesus, that Jesus is my big brother, that the church is his bride and that he is their husband. I know that Jesus is the head of the church. I know that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, that he is before all things so that all things hold together in him so that in everything he would be preeminent. I'm not ashamed of knowing Jesus. I'm not ashamed of being obsessed with Jesus. Jesus is all I have. And he says, I also know that Jesus will guard me to the end. And this is Paul's hope. He says that he who began a good work in me will bring it about until the day of completion. That's what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I know that there will be a new heaven, that there will be a new earth, that there will be a new kingdom. I know that pain and suffering will pass away and that he will wipe away every tear. I know in whom I have believed and I know what he is going to do and that he will not let me go. That nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Not famine, not plague, not myself, not powers in hell or powers of heaven. Nothing will separate me. And so Paul says, in light of this, I am not ashamed, although I suffer. And those are the commands he gives. He says, do not be ashamed. You know, shame is a sense of terror or fear because of the disgrace connected with the performance of some action. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because you want to talk at the, about the association with the action of the gospel. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because this is the power of Christ unto salvation for all who believe. There's nothing shameful about that. 
sexy, but we live in an upside-down world. What we should be ashamed of is our sin. What we should be ashamed of, like Isaiah, is that I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. We should be ashamed of the lies that we tell and the lies that we believe and the lies that permeate our country and our nation and our world. But instead, people are more ashamed of truth. People are more ashamed of salvation than their sin. Think about that. So many believers are more ashamed of their salvation than they are of their sin. How upside down is that? Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is about removing your shame. The fancy theological word for that is expiation. Expiation, the removal of shame. We think of propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. Expiation is the removal of shame associated with sin. In, in the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, it was they sent the one goat into the wilderness to go be with Azazel, his buddy. It's removed. It's gone. No more shame. No more memory. Untarnished. We've been cleansed from the guilt associated with what we've done. We've been cleansed of this. This is important. No one ever preaches about this. We've been cleansed of the shame of things that have been done to us, right? So people who are victims of, of, of sexual crime, things like that, things where they're an innocent victim in it, but they've been attacked, and then they carry disgrace, the gospel rids you of your disgrace. It removes shame. It expiates it from you so that you can walk in freedom. Forgetting the past, the past failures, the past insecurities, the past wounds, and then moving forward in freedom without shame because I know in whom I have believed and I know he is able to hold me fast, and he will. So Paul says, do not be ashamed. And then he says, instead, Suffer with me, Timothy. Suffer with me. Embrace suffering. Give it a bear hug, man. Because the path of Christ is in many respects a path of suffering. Jesus, if Jesus, who should have had the name above all names, who should have been given all of the respect of the entire universe, right? Jesus, who alone is worthy of all power and honor and, and wisdom and wealth, Jesus, if Jesus is called the man of suffering, if Jesus is called the suffering servant, why would we not think that all who are with him would become like him? We're being made into the image of Christ. And that includes his suffering. Paul says, I, he, Paul prays that he would become like Jesus in his suffering. I'm not talking about suffering because you're an idiot, all right? I'm talking about suffering for the gospel. Not suffering because you're a fool. Suffering because you proclaim Jesus in kindness and tenderness, with grace and truth, with salt that's not going to give you a heart attack, okay? That's what I'm talking about. And you suffer because Paul says, 
later, indeed, all who strive to live a godly life will be persecuted. Timothy. You know, you guys remember the emperor's new clothes? Remember that story? Emperor's new clothes. Basically, there's an emperor. This guy comes into town. He's a snake oil salesman. He says, I got this new outfit. I want you to buy it. It's look, look great on you. And it's, he's naked. Okay? So the emperor's naked. But he, like, he knows he's naked, but he doesn't want to admit it because everybody's like, oh, it looks so great. Right? It's just like Nero playing the fiddle. It looks so great on you. And nobody wants to tell him the truth. And then what happens is as, as the emperor's walking around showing off his new clothes, right? He's showing off his new clothes, okay? And what happens is everybody's like, I can't say anything because I don't want to get killed. Everybody else is saying this is really fancy. Maybe I just can't see it. And then finally, one little kid says, but mom, he hasn't got any clothes on. All right? Don't be ashamed of the true gospel. The true gospel, even though it's counter to our culture, don't be ashamed of it. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And everything else is passing away and all that is in it. The kingdom of Satan, the world, is going the way of the dodo. And the gospel upsets it because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It's why he came. And now they're in a stage of public shame and mockery, and they're desperate like a cornered animal. Look, the gospel will upset systems. It will upset politics and culture and religion and people. The gospel is hard to share because of what it says, but it is all we have. And it is our only hope in life and death. Our only hope in life and death is that we belong to Christ. That's our hope. And that is on the basis of the gospel. And so do not be ashamed. You know, when Jesus said to carry your cross, you know, he says that. He says to carry your cross. He talks to people and they got like a bum knee and they're like, it's my cross to bear, you know. That literally means, I heard D.A. Carson preach on this once, that to carry your cross was to publicly carry your embarrassment and shame on your way to execution, which was shameful enough, by the way to publicly carry your embarrassment. To carry your cross means to embrace the shame of being associated with the one who carried the cross before you. To pick it up and walk. To proclaim the gospel. To die to yourself. And to proclaim him even though people don't want to hear it. Look, rapid fire. I'm going to do this before we run out of time. Let me tell you some ways in which the gospel is like a punch to the face for our culture today. We don't want to hear it, okay? Listen, the gospel is a message that states many people will go to hell. That's not a nice message, but it is the way to salvation to escape it as well, and so it's good news. We live in a pluralistic society. It's deeply influenced by Hinduism. You know, we say things like Eastern religion, New Age. It's just Hinduism, guys. It's literally just a veneer of something like Hollywood, and underneath it is Hinduism, where everything is fine, all roads lead to heaven. It's not true. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation, nothing else. The gospel is counter to religious, 
movements is counter to religious piety and self-righteous rules. And the truth is that we live in a religious society where people believe that going to church, going to mosque, going to temple, fasting during Lent, fasting during Ramadan, baptizing their babies, getting confirmed, paying tithes, all these things will guarantee their salvation. It's not true. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because it and not religion is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel message corresponds with godliness as a result, not a cause. But we live in a grace-abusing society where churches say that Jesus loves you, you can do whatever you want, marry a buffalo, it doesn't matter because Jesus is all about love. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And it begins in your heart and it transforms your life. The gospel message says that no matter how many times a person falls into sin, if they are in Christ, they will be forgiven. We live in a society where we don't want dirty people to be forgiven. We want them to be punished because we want to earn our spot at the table. It's the American way. All right, that was an eagle. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. See, the gospel message supersedes... It was a bad eagle. What do you want me to say? (laughs) The gospel message supersedes your politics. It supersedes your upbringing. It supersedes your culture. But we live in a society we are told that politics equal faith. And we are told, or we are told politics have nothing to do with our faith. We are told we are racist because we are white, or we're racist because we're black, or we can't be racist because we're black or white. And we're told all sorts of things by our culture, our news, and our politicians. But this is the truth. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is directly counter to the LGBTQ worldview. The LGBTQ worldview is man-centered. It says you are fine just the way you are. It says you were born this way and that you should love whoever you want and however you want. But the gospel is God-centered and it says you are not fine the way that you are. You were born dead in your sins. You need to be born again. And that true love is not doing whatever you want, however you want, but true love is that God loved you while you were his enemy and died for you. It is a counter gospel. And so many of the examples that I gave are counter gospels. There's false gospels that are political, false gospels that are sexual, false gospels that are racial, And they're all false gospels, but only the true gospel has the power to save your soul. And so do not be ashamed of it. The gospel message says that no man is worthy, regardless of gender identity, orientation, race. Everyone is a sinner in need of salvation, and all are invited to respond to Jesus in surrender and bending the knee. Jesus says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Church, these things are controversial. They'd get me canceled in a moment's notice if I cared. One day, it will be illegal to proclaim the gospel. It will. One day, it will be more volatile to preach this message. 
one day following Jesus will mean open suffering and shame. We are not there yet, not compared to our brothers and sisters overseas. But following Jesus will lead to suffering. And so come to grips with the reality now that you will not shrink back and you will not be ashamed of the gospel, but you will proclaim it in love. Anybody can proclaim it like a bully. We'll proclaim it in love. And the reason we proclaim in love is because it's the power of God to save sinners like me and like you and like everybody else who's not here. And they need good news. They need good news. But let's not be ashamed of it. Father God, help us to not be ashamed ever. And God, some people in the room, they struggle with being ashamed. Other people in the room, they're so bold, they just, it's like they walk around with a shoe in their mouth. God, I pray that you would teach us how to not be ashamed. Show us when to be bold. Show us when to be blunt. Show us when to be loud and when to be quiet and listen. Would you give us the wisdom that we need to engage the times that we live in? Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us. Embolden us, God, and that you would use us for your glory. I pray that we would stop listening to all the other voices and instead we would listen to the voice of truth that we would be in love with your word as your spirit speaks to us, God. And we wouldn't fall prey to all of the voices in our culture that try to tell us what we should believe and where the real path of freedom and progress is found. Pray these things in your name. Amen.